Okay. There is an announcement. One, cell phones. I don't know if that means turn them off or we're giving out free cell phones to everyone, but it just says cell phones. Um, maybe this is like the Oprah show. And a free cell phone. Um, ah, okay. And I am, it says here I need to remind anyone who has not registered officially for the class to register. So, anyone who has not officially registered. Okay. Um, someone just stopped me in the hall and mentioned and I don't know how much overlap there is between this class and Yael Ziegler in terms of um, who signed up, but I was told that Yael Ziegler's class is also on Brayshit, um, and that you're, you're having a little much of Brayshit. So we're actually moving beyond the primordial stories today. Um, and today is actually going to be one of the last of the intro classes in terms of approach and how we're going to be looking at the sections in Tanakh. But what I'm going to be doing today is something that I think is... Um, going to give you one final insight before we really approach, we're going to be starting to enter into topics that will be a couple of classes for each topic. And what we're doing today is sort of um, going to be that one last introduction. So if you remember, um, last class, we talked about the binary in Breshit. We've been talking about structures altogether and how in order to understand the universe, we as human beings create structures that enable us to make sense of all of the stimuli around us. And we talked last class about the big misconception that if we look at Breshit structurally, um, through a structuralist perspective, that one of the things we notice is that really what goes on in Breshit with the Nachash, with the serpent, is not so much that he was lying or not so much, it was that he actually misunderstood the most fundamental binary that exists from our human perspective. The Nachash created the binary, or he imagined that the reason Hashem did not want us in Gan Eden with access to the tree of, tree of life and tree of knowledge is because, if you remember what he said? God doesn't want you to be intelligent, right? And he wasn't wrong, right? But he created a binary as if, and I'm going to put it on the board, The Nahash made the claim that Hashem doesn't want you here because then you're going to be like one of the gods, knowing right, knowing right, Tovara. And so he created a binary as if God versus human, and that which distinguishes us is that the gods have intellect or intelligence, and the humans do not. Okay. But then the whole point, really, again, from a structuralist perspective, if we were taking a different approach, we'd have 10 different other ways to understand the story. But really, at the end of the day, what we saw when Hashem removed humanity from Gan Eden was not because he didn't want us to be intelligent beings. If anything, the only way we could be tov, the only way we could actualize all of the latent potential that was part and parcel of human beings as a creation wholesale was outside the Gan, when we had Da'at Tovara, when we can interact as male and female and everything that that entails, and work the earth and have children. The binary, the story of Gan Eden clarifies, is what? Okay, excellent, right? Snake, you had it wrong. There was one nuance in your argument that you had wrong. God doesn't not want us to be intelligent. Once we have intelligence, we will reach for the tree of life. But the actual most fundamental binary, 
that we experience is the difference between immortality and mortality. Okay? And the, really, we can only appreciate what the story of Gan Eden is really giving us if we look at it through this structuralist perspective. So what I want to do today is I want to actually look at one last, again, as I mentioned, sort of introductory thing um, that we're going to be talking about, and that's the issue of mythology. Okay? And I think that mythology really gets a lot of um, flack, or I think it's mistaken in terms of our understanding of what mythology really is. If I say, right, free associate, I say myth. What do you say? Story. A fable. Fiction. Right? It's even used in modern parlance. Right? There's, I, used, I don't remember when I heard who this was, a politician back in America, said, oh, I know they're saying that stuff about me, but that's a myth. As if myth and falsehood are now synonymous. That's what the word has come to use, again, in the way in our um, sort of lexicon. And the truth is that when we talk about myth like that, we are completely misunderstanding humanity and why myth has been around since the origins of humanity. And when we talk about the origins of humanity, we're talking about the Paleolithic period. They had myths that were drawn on the insides of caves, right, that archaeologists now decipher and try to begin to understand. So when we're talking about myth, really, it's really, really very much mistranslated and oftentimes also dismissed as something meaningless, right? Oh, it's a cute story. Oh, it's what the people before they were really smart and sophisticated thinkers used to do. That's what the stories that they would tell. And that's really not what it is at all. Myth essentially, okay, and we're going to talk about where it comes from, but myth essentially enables humanity just like structuralism, right? That's why myth is another element within this sort of anthropological perspective. Can myth basically... Oh, that's what they meant. <laughs> um, myth essentially enables us, right, if we imagine that history, we think today of history, right, as something that's always in, flu is, is always in flux, right, but we think about it as chronological. Something happened and then something else happened and then something else happened. Myth and the ancient minds, and really humanity, I think, wholesale, we're going to realize we do it too, doesn't think in chronological linear patterns. They talk about things not that happened, Right? We have the Torah and we believe that the divine, right, Hashem communicated the Torah to us, not to tell us what once happened in Gan Eden. Right? Rambam is perfectly comfortable calling all of these primordial stories, up until Parakid Aleph, myth. Right? Not with any pejorative connotations, but as if to say Hashem is not telling us what once happened with a guy named Adam and a woman named Eve. Hashem is telling us what always happens. Okay? It didn't happen one time, it's what always happens. Humanity will always, if you have two brothers, and one thinks that God prefers them, or right, if we go into psychological terms, that the parent, right, the father prefers them, there will always be jealousy. There will always be one, be it a person, be it a nation, that feels that their identity and everything that they are is being infringed upon by another being or another group doing something similar or doing the same thing. And the question is, and what mythology, right, with the story, for example, of Cain and Hevel is teaching us, is how do we react to that, right? And do we use religion as a reason to kill? And all these other things that these stories communicate to us about the truth about humanity that are eternal, that are in, that time and culture is, is really irrelevant. Um, now, if I asked you what's the most important component that unique to humans, right? Because animals don't have myths. So what is unique to us and our minds that enables us to construct myths? Huh? Okay, language is certainly one of them. I would say language is almost secondary. It enables us to communicate them and, and transmit them. But there's certainly a piece of it, right? Because it's cyclical. Imagination. 
Okay. Imagination, right? Imagine who said future? Okay, so imagination and our imagination enables us to do two things that animals cannot do, right? Our imagination enables us to imagine realities that we have never seen or experienced, okay? To imagine something that we've never seen or that's not in front of us. And it also enables us to anticipate what's next, right? And that enables us to run from predators in the jungle, right? It also enables us to know that if I put a, right, agriculturalism. Animals don't plant seeds and grow wheat and turn them into flour and then add a leavening agent and then use heat and turn it into bread. All of that takes imagination and being able to imagine that this seed, with all of these various processes, can one day be something other than a seed. That's not something animals have. Okay? And mythology really grows from that. And what's interesting, I think, is that here's where if someone says there are two things that are binary, you'll say, no, they're not. If I ask you what's the opposite of myth, you might say, or people, now you won't anymore, but someone might say, science. Right, because science is empirical, and myth is just, there's nothing real. But they're not, in fact, binaries if we think about where they come from, because the same imagination, right, where a person can imagine sending someone from this planet to the moon, or building something that can resist, defy gravity, and fly through the air from one continent to the next, all of that is imagination. And the same natural instinct we have to make sense of the physical world around us and understand what's an atom and what's a molecule and what's gravity and where, what is happening physically around me is the very same element, or I would say human characteristic, that tries to make sense of the metaphysical world. Okay? Again, post-scientific revolution, we have sort of moved in one direction. And whether or not we should be moving to the... So, and again, as religious Jews, maybe not as much, right? But very much the world has moved in a place where if I cannot prove something empirically, then it doesn't exist, then it's not real. Okay? And mythology would argue very much that even if you cannot prove something empirically, it's no less true than the things I can see and touch. Yeah? But then you have rational thinking, which, is, which I think is a, is a binary. Okay. Because if you think rationally about a myth, depending upon the myth, it's not rational. Okay, so it's not, I would say, perhaps physically possible, right? It's not, there's a lot, it's not irrational at all. It's a very rational thing. It's not necessarily physically possible or provable or there's a million things that myths are not. I wouldn't call them irrational though, right? By rational, I mean logical also. Um, yeah, they have a very they, they they have an internal logic. They're not necessarily based on our physical experiences, but they are very much based on people's sort of meta right. Think about myth. What does myth do? Myth, and we're going to talk about today how it, how it's going to affect what the Parak and Tanakh that we're going to look at today. But if you talk, for example, about um, I don't know, I'm trying to think. Right. Well, I'll, I'll say one. Actually, no. It's Yes. But is that any less rational? I don't know that there's not, like you're saying, an internal logic to it, and I don't know that just because it's not factual or empirical, right? Again, we're talking about truth and fact, right? You could argue are binaries. So you could argue that myth is not fact, but it's not less true. I think that's what's important, right? If they came up with stories about the gods of the seas and when the gods would get angry, and that's why there was a tsunami that destroyed humanity, 
it may not be the way we understand how the physical world around us works, but it, that, it's not any less true. And by the way, I don't think it's so different from how we as Jews understand things, but we'll get back to that, yeah. I think of it makes sense in the world, and in the same way science also makes sense. In the That's ex world. That is exactly correct. That's why I said they're really flip sides of the same coin. Science is making fun of the physical, uh, making sense, not making fun, making sense of the physical world around us, and myth is making sense of all of the metaphysical experiences that we have. Right? I want to know why if I jump up, I fall down. Gravity explains that. Right? But it doesn't explain immortality. It doesn't explain love. It doesn't explain the forces in nature that I can't control. Everything else that are metaphysical, so to speak. Okay? Um, okay. Yeah. There was another question or not? But, but some myths also, when you said uh, science tries to explain the physical world and myth is trying to explain the metaphysical world, but myth mythology also is trying to explain the, often the physical world. I mean, okay, so and I'm happy you're saying that. What we're going to be talking about today is that even the binary we're creating, metaphysical and physical, is not the way, is not the way humanity, until the scientific revolution, really, considered the world. There was no difference between the physical and the metaphysical, and that's a binary that we create. That's, and we're going to be looking at that today. That's what exactly what we're going to be talking about. So I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, let's look inside. And we're going to start with ah, one other thing, actually, before we start. I'm going to give you an example using water. Um, is a word that's very important also to learn. And we're going to be coming back to this a lot, a lot, a lot. And if there are any psychologists in the room, you will know this word from Carl Jung's work. Archetypes. Okay, archetypes are basically, well, what are archetypes? You tell me. And we're going to talk about how they fit into mythology. What's an archetype? Huh? Typical behavior of the norm. Okay, certainly typical behavior, right? It could be, sometimes we have paradigmatic personalities in Tanakh for sure, right? There could be the archetype and then everyone else sort of follows into that pattern. Carl Jung, when he talks about it in psychology, right? He says how across the globe, human beings have certain experiences that parallel people in other parts of the world, and it's not based on anything other than what he calls, and I think he was the first to coin this term, I could be wrong, collective consciousness, right? So he was dealing with, with, with psych patients in a Swiss uh, psych ward who were having a psychotic break, and they were drawing mandalas that were borrowed from Indian, and there was no way for them to have ever seen a mandala, but somehow that was part of their collective consciousness. And he talks about how that impacts psyche and there's all these other things that it implies. I want to focus more superficially today on an archetype. And I brought this one because it's, it's almost the most prevalent and almost impossible not to, and because we already addressed it in pieces in Sheet, which is water. Okay? How do human beings interact with and think about water? What does water represent to humanity, whether we're conscious of it or not? And by the way, most archetypes we are not conscious of. Right? We experience patterns or structures in the world and we associate meaning with them because of this collective consciousness. We don't necessarily know why we're doing it. Okay? So the first thing when we talk about, when we think about water, okay? and I'm gonna, if you look on your sources here, it says as follows. It cannot be sufficiently stressed that these Sumerian cosmogenic concepts, cosmogony is basically the origins of the world. Our story of Briata Olam is our version of cosmogony, how everything, the cosmos, came to be. Um, early as they are, are by no means primitive. They reflect the mature thought and reason of the thinking Sumerian as he contemplated the forces of nature and the character of his own existence, right? And we're going to talk about this more, but that's the two were one and the same. 
right? The forces of nature and my existence are not two separate things. When these concepts are analyzed, when the theological cloak and polytheistic trappings are removed, the Sumerian creation concepts indicate a keenly observing mentality as well as an ability to draw and formulate pertinent conclusions from the data observed. Okay, that's perhaps the most important piece. The longe I would say the value of a myth or how we can assess whether or not a myth was successful is by what? Huh? Okay, longevity and there's two components. I would say a sort of another aspect of longevity. Why does a myth have longevity? Because it resonates and it enables people to change. Myth is not just, hmm, that's what it's all about. It's, hmm, if that's what it's all about, I am not an object within, I am a subject. I can interact with my environment, right? The same way we do with science. Now that I understand what genetics are, maybe I can prevent mutations. If I can understand how the gods work, or if I can understand why things are in this world the way they are, maybe I can have slightly more control over it or interact with it in a way that impacts my existence. Okay, so it's longevity because it resonates and because it enables people to change and to create change around them. Okay, um, I'll read the next one, and I think he brings one of the best metaphors I've ever heard from myth in this. This is, oh, sorry, she, this is Karen Armstrong, and everyone should read this book. It's very short, short history of myth, but she goes through all the different periods in human history, right, from the Paleolithic period all the way through the Greek mythology, all the way through the mid Middle Ages. And she talks about how mythology evolves based on, right, when you have agriculturalists, I'm interacting with the land differently than when I was a hunter-gatherer. So my myth is going to reflect my different relationship to the land. So it's a great book if anyone wants a myth, therefore, is true because it is effective, not because it gives us factual information. If, however, it does not give us new insight into the deeper meaning of life, it has failed. If it works, that is, if it forces us to change our minds and our hearts, gives us new hope, and compels us to live more fully, it is, valid. it is a valid myth. Mythology will only transform us if we follow its directives. A myth is essentially a guide. It tells us what we must do in order to live more richly. If we do not apply it to our own situation and make the myth a reality in our own lives, it will remain as incomprehensible and remote as the rules of a board game, which often seem confusing and boring until we start to play, right? Anyone who has ever played with children and they get a new game and it's very exciting for them and then you have to sit there Shabbos afternoon and try to understand what the 10 different pages of rules, and you can't because it makes no sense in theory until, and then it's after a half hour you say, you know what, let's just start and then we'll figure it out, the rules as we go. That's what mythology is. Mythology makes sense when it's internalized in our lives. And what we're going to be doing today is looking at, I think, a way that, that, some, that I think something that we're missing in our understanding of the universe. So if we talk about water, okay, water is something that, again, as I mentioned, is one of the most, right, sort of universal archetypes within myth. We didn't spend a lot of time because I've done it in other classes. Right? But if you look at all of the ancient Near Eastern creation myths, what do they all have in common? Chaotic forces of water trying to overthrow the forces of righteousness or order in the world. Right? And of course it goes without saying that in Breshit, by Yomer Hashem, and it just happens. God doesn't have to battle it out with any other deities. Right? That's of course unique to us. But water and the threat of water and the fear of water and the water as a sustaining is all there in all of ancient myths from the beginning. I brought a couple of examples here. I'm going to read them on the sheets, and you'll tell me where in Tanakh 
how this resonates, right? Because Tanakh always, Dibrat Torah, Kilshon, Bnei Adam. To state the case in brief, water symbolizes the whole of potentiality, principle of what is formless and potential, basis of every cosmic manifestation, container of all seeds, Water symbolizes the primal substance from which all forms come. It precedes all forms and upholds all creation. So say the pasuk in Breshit that speaks to this human conception of water. Water was a primordial element that was there before order was created. God did not create water ex nihilo. Because it incorporates in itself all potentiality, water becomes a symbol of life, living water. Where have we heard that word before? Open up to Pamidbar very quickly. And there's, we have this phrase all over Tanakh. We have it all the way through Yirmiyahu, really, it's used. But I'll just give you one. Pamidbar Yudtet, Numbers 19, verse Yudzayin, Pasuk, verse 17. Right, and it's talking about 19, Pasuk Yudzayin. And this is actually in the context of a purification, which we're going to talk about, but look at the way water is referred to. Right, and if you jump, I'll just give you one other example. Go to Yirmiyahu Perak Look at how Yirmiyahu Here we go. Yirmiyahu Perak Bet Pasuk Yud Gimel, right? This parak begins a hearty lachasin Rayachavakulotai. Hashem is talking about why, right, why we sort of deserted him. And then look at what Hashem says in Pasuk Yud Gimel. He says as follows. Thirteen. Chapter two, verse thirteen. We did two things wrong. Oti azvu mikor mayim chayim lachtsov lahem borot borot nishparim asher lo yachilu hamayim. Here Hashem is already using, and I'm mentioning this example because it's going to come into play. How we can, and it goes exactly back to what you were saying about the physical and the metaphysical being one and the same. Hashem is using the way we experience water as an implied metaphor for our relationship with him. If water sustains us physically, our relationship with God sustains us, whatever we want to call it, spiritually. But what did we do? Instead of drinking from the Mayim Chaim that God provides us with, where have we been do- what have we been doing? We're digging wells. What, what are we doing digging wells? And he says himself, the wells are not going to quench our thirst. Okay, so here's that perfect sort of shilu, that, that combination between metaphor and the real experience of drinking water. Okay, look back inside. Immersion in water. And you should already be thinking, right? Immersion in water symbolizes a return to the preformal, a total regeneration, a new birth. For immersion means a dissolution of forms, a reintegration into the formless of pre-existence, and emerging from the water is a repetition of the act of creation in which form was first expressed. Okay, so before we even get to Tanakh, why is it, a hum- why is it very human to imagine that if you go into water, you come out? Right? So you come out of the waters, right? The amniotic fluid, so you're born. And so if you ever want to recreate the experience of birth, I know we're not even going to venture into Christianity, but that's all about, right? That's why... 
Baptism. Correct, right? It was all about the rebirth. But it's from as far back as we know, we've had this experience of water. Give me examples in Tanakh where water is symbolic of that. Okay, so Kriyat Yom Suf, we were born as a nation, right? We were one nation before, and then we became a nation upon emerging from those waters. What else? What? So it's so interesting. Moshe is part of a whole nother group of stories where I think you're 100% correct, right? Where the hero is first placed in a water, and then he sort of comes out of it. What else? Um, that's interesting. She drinks the water. She's not immersed in it. That's interesting. Um, so it's a fascinating case in its own right, though. Yeah. The flood story. Oh, wow. The flood story. The flood story. All of you, ma- God was done with humanity. We're starting a second time. And then only once Noah comes out from, right, the waters recede, and Noah, that one new Adam, emerges. Give me another example. Think about, right, if we think about the meaning of life, what's the meaning of life according to Tanakh? And we get sort of insight into this when Hashem talks to Yirmiyahu, I knew before you were born, you were tapped to be Navi for the people. So if you don't do what you're supposed to do in life, then you're not fully, right, filling your point here. And who do we know that? Yonah. Yonah, Hashem tells Yonah, you have a job to do, and Yonah tries to run away, and only once he's drawn under the waters and then emerges from them when the whale, and again, the whale in and of itself is another archetype, which maybe we'll get to one day, right? But the whale spits him out, can he now emerge anew and begin his new, right, this new chapter in life where he's actually on the way to fulfilling things. So it's all over the place. I think I wrote down one other example. No. Okay. Um, in which, which one? Which year? Ah, okay, so immersion. Oh, so listen, I think any immersion, and by the way, we're going to be spending a lot of time on impurity. Um, immer- right? Why do, we, why do we go into the mikvah to purify ourselves? That's exactly, we're going to be talking a lot about that. Yeah? This is the opposite, like Yosef, Ah, that's so interesting. I like that. That's really, really interesting. Is there something there that it's like trying to teach us? I have to think about that. That Yosef is the flip, right? Aimbo Mayim. Yosef was in the boar, Aimbo Mayim. That's really interesting. I need to think about that. Correct. The splitting of the air. It's all over the place, right? There's no... Okay. Um, now, in terms of... I'm going to read one other because this is also... Next one is really, really important. Here we go. Rich in seeds... It fertilizes, and this is what we're going to be spending a little bit of time on and see what Tanakh has to say about these next two paragraphs, okay? Rich in seeds, it fertilizes the earth, animals, and women. Okay, this is what we mentioned in terms of, think about what we're seeing in terms of how we conceive of fertility and fertility. It contains in itself all possibilities. It is supremely fluid. It sustains the development of all things, and it is therefore either compared or even directly assimilated with the moon. Its rhythms are fitted in the same pattern as the moon's. They govern the periodic appearance and disappearance of all forms. They give a cyclic form to the development of things everywhere. Then, too, since prehistoric times, water, moon, and woman were seen as forming the orbit of fertility, both for man and the universe. Water used to be represented on Neolithic vases. And again, just to give you a sense, okay, if Abraham is mid-1900s BCE, and we get the Torah around 13th century BCE. Neolithic period is, anyone know? 
Neolithic period all the way back as early as 12,000 BCE. They're seeing these signs, okay? And the Paleolithic period, which she's going to mention in a second, is 40,000. 40,000 BCE, okay? Um, water used to be represented on Neolithic vases by the sign, that sign, which is also the oldest Egyptian hieroglyphic for flowing water. Even in Paleolithic times, the spiral was a symbol of water and lunar fertility. When inscribed on a feminine idol, it united all these centers of life and fertility. Okay, where in Tanakh is it possible? And again, think less in terms of linear narrative and think more in terms of what, what forgetting the, the, the Imahot and the, the, the stories of barren women, okay? As a nation, where do we hear? Where is fertility one of the preoccupations of our national story? Right. Before we get to Vayigdal HaYelet and we meet Moshe, right, the story of Mitzrayim could have started. There was a guy, Moshe, Hashem found him in the Midbar, and he spoke to him and he said, take my people out of Egypt. It doesn't. It starts with Vayilach Hishmi Beit Levi, Vayikachet Bat Levi, Vatahar Vatelet, and the first two prakim in Shemot are about Paro, right, the evil dictator, trying to prevent the birth and fertility of the nation, and God pushing back, Paru Vayishertu Vayirbu. But the mediator between God's will and Paro's will are the midwives and Miriam and Yocheved and Bat Paro. So there again, you have, right, it's almost as if we create, go back to that first class, because I'm going to be drawing from it all the time. If Paro's on one end and God is on one end and they have very different plans for the future of Israel, the mediators are, right, the Mialdot. Well, they're Egyptian, but they're Hebrew, but which one are they? But they're the ones that ensure that fertility comes to the fore. Now, there's only one mitzvah other than the first mitzvah of Pesach that we get in Mitzrayim. What is it? We got that in Bereshit. Brit Milah we get after. HaChodesh Hazeh Lachem Rosh Chodashim. In the context of this pursuit of the fecundity of a nation, is look up at the moon, you are going to chart your course according to the moon. So again, when we begin to be sensitized to these archetypes that humanity has always understood that are lost to us because we're post-scientific, we all of a sudden see new meaning in what Hashem was saying even in stories like Mitzrayim. Okay, I'm gonna, this is where we're going to talk now about something specific in Tanakh. Look in the next paragraph. In any analysis... There is always a danger of breaking apart or reducing to separate elements what was a single unity, a cosmos, in the mind that produced it. The same symbol may indicate or evoke a whole series of realities which only profane experience would see as separate and autonomous. The many different symbolic values given to a single emblem or word in primitive languages continually show us that to the mind that conceived it, the world appeared as an organic whole. Okay, and we're going to use a very specific example in a second. In Sumerian, ah means water, but also means, right, it means all these things, sperm, conception, generation. In Mesopotamian carvings, for instance, these symbolic fish and water are emblems of fertility, right? If anyone goes, right, see in the Svarti, right, we still have fish as ocean. We still use it as one of our symbols on Rosh, Rosh Hashanah because certain things become, right, and also even in Yaakov's blessing. Why is he blessing his children that they should be like fish? Because schools of fish have always represented in the human mind this amount, this sort of fertility. Now, what I want to, what she mentions here in the first line is, is really, really important. What does he say? What does that mean? There's always a danger of breaking apart or reducing to separate elements what was a single unity. Yeah. 
No, it's, he's actually not talking about God here. It means that there are things that we think of, as what we mentioned at the beginning of class, as, as two separate elements in the world, but in the ancient minds were actually not. Okay, I'm going to give you an example. Let's look inside. Go back to the very beginning of Rishi, Parak Ala. Chapter 1, verse 11. We see something very interesting, and we mentioned this already before, before we did the story of Gan Eden. But Hashem says, God creates the potential for vegetation with what? Seed. Okay. But seed on its own doesn't work. Go to the next parak, Pasuke, chapter 2, verse 5. We saw this last week. There are three elements necessary, or three things necessary. What is it? Seed. Water and man. Okay? And if we think about it, it's almost a symbiotic relationship. Seed can't grow without us working the land, but we can't live without seed. Right? We need food to survive, and it's almost like the food needs us to grow. Okay? That's a very important relationship that we don't think about as much. Okay, let's go on a little bit. When does that relationship Right? And I'm calling it a relationship on purpose. We don't think of humans and earth as having a relationship. Tanakh most certainly does. Okay? And sorry, anyone who was in my class, I think two years ago, I talked about this. So just bear with me for five minutes. Go back to Parak Gimel. Parak Gimel, chapter 3, verse 17. Okay? And now before you look at it, after everything that happens with the Eitzah Chaim and Eitzah Dat, and Hashem says, Aruratah, right? There's all these curses. But if we look carefully at the curses, what are they? They're not, they're not punishments. We don't see the word onesh. We don't see vayichar Hashem. The curse is almost what? Consequence. A consequence, and it's almost saying, here's what the human experience is going to be like. In theory, it would be lovely if there were no power struggle between male and female, but there is going to be. And in theory, it would be wonderful if animals and humans could just sort of coexist, but there's going to be tension between the human and the animal kingdom. Right, so the curse to right, we have the curse with the snake that he's going to try to bite your foot, and you're going to stamp him on the head, and the curse and the the reality of the tension and the ongoing power struggle between male and female, and then there's a third relationship mentioned, and I'm calling it a relationship because it's in the context of two other relationships that are sort of affected. Okay, go to Perak Gimel verse 17. Pasuk Hashem says, Ule Adam Amar. We're reminded here of our that we're dust, right? So we're another manifestation of dust, right? We're animated dust, but we're dust. 
But as long as we live, just like our relationship between the genders will be affected and our relationship with the animal kingdom, our relationship with land is going to be affected. How? Because just like everything else in our human experience, it's going to take work. And it's not always going to be easy. Okay? But there's no question that human beings and the land are in this dynamic relationship. Now, where's the first time we see our relationship with the land affected. Here's the hypotheticals, right? This is, from here, this is an etiology. The human experience is what it is because you're human, period. Good. Huh? Okay, excellent. Go forward to Paragdalid, verse chapter 4, verse 10. Now, again, remember, this is very important. The relationship, I'm going to erase this for a second. We're gonna, I'm going to redo it like this, okay? Man and land, okay? Man and land, and I made the arrows in both directions because it's a relationship, okay? The first murder that occurs, Cain kills Hebel, and go to Paragdalid, Hasu, what I say, Yud, and listen to what happens, okay? Vayomer, God says, Cain, me'asita, kol dmei achicha, min right, the blood of your brother, is calling to me from the earth. And now what's going to happen? And again, Hashem doesn't say, I'm kicking you out. I'm exiling you. I'm punishing you. That's not what happens. Cain is Navanad. Why? Why does Cain have to wander for the rest of his life? He has to learn that. Huh? He has to learn It's not that he doesn't have own land. Why? Why does he have to wander? Because the land doesn't like him anymore, and it's not going to give to him. And so he's going to have to scramble to find seed to sustain himself. Look at that. Look at the language in the Tanakh. Ve'ata alur ata min ha'adama asher patsta et v'ya lakachat et me'achicha mi'adecha. The land had to soak up the blood of your brother, and it's now really, really mad. So ki ta'avot teit kochalach. If there's this implicit relationship between man and land, so now why is man being rejected? Why is land not doing his part? And actually, I should call it human because it applies to us too. Why? How so? Think about it in a structuralist. Think from a structuralist. Put your anthropology hat on. Why is the land saying, uh-uh, this doesn't count? Because he forced Okay, true. I'm going to even say more than that. Why is the land saying, I'm out. I'm not giving to you the way I'm supposed to in this relationship. What did Cain do? He did not act like a human. Human beings are not supposed to kill. Human Murder is not what we're supposed to do. Right? And again, we're not getting into the topic of war and politics and everything else. Right? We're talking now in a very hypothetical, right? You are not, so if you don't act human, well then land, you just undermined the relationship because you defined there is no longer a relationship. Correct, because it's not what it wants to correct. Okay? So that's exactly what happens with Kayan. Hashem does not get angry, Hashem does not get mad. The reality when you don't act like a human is that the land no longer treats you like a human and gives to you in the way that the relationship between humans and earth should be functioning. Where do we see this on a national level? 
Okay, excellent, right? Go to just one of the million examples. Leviticus 18, Vayikra Yudchet. just by way of example, but this is all over Tanakh. Pasuk Chaphei. This is talking about all the, um, it's giving all the list of immoral behaviors we're not allowed to engage in. And then Pasuk Chaphei, it says, don't do all those things, all those things that are not moral, that are not human, right? We'll call them subhuman. You know the people that lived in the land of Israel before we came? Why did God remove them? Because they were engaging in behavior that is not becoming people that earn the right to live in this special land. And then he goes on, The land became full of tum'ah, right, from all these things. Hashem didn't remove the Canaanites. The land rejected them. And by the way, the implicit warning, and we see this over and over in Tanakh, is if we don't earn our place, it'll spit us out too. Okay? It understands exile as a breached relationship between us and Eretz Yisrael, not only, right now, again, it also talks about Hashem being angry and Hashem sending Nebuchadnezzar, but at the very most fundamental level, the land rejects us if we don't act as humanely as possible and earn our right to live here. Okay? Now, um, one of the things, and by the way, very, very interestingly, the nations that are the quintessential nations, right? This is also important because we're going to talk about this when we talk about like ideologies, right? Ammon and Moab, for example, can't come. We're going to talk about this in future classes. We can't bring that because they symbolize, right? They are the symbol or the archetype of, give me a word. Incest. That's really, really bad. Okay, we don't like incest. It's a big, big deal in Tanakh. Okay, and we're going to talk about why. It's a huge, in anthropology, it's a huge issue, and in Tanakh, it is a huge issue. Okay? Way back, I'm talking about Amon and Moab, the originals, Lot's da- uh, when, when, Lot's, when Lot's daughters got him drunk and they became pregnant with his children and grandchildren. Okay? Um, but go back now, think in terms of ideology. There's early on, right after the, we talked about him last week, right after the flood, when Hashem is once again saying, there's someone that is rejected because he acts immorally. Who is it? The father of Canaan. Okay. In Tanakh, the archetypes always display the behavior that becomes emblematic of the nation later on in our experiences with them. And we have to keep an eye towards that also. Okay? Because archetypes create those binaries. Okay. Now, one last thing that I think is really important in terms of humans and land that we also distinguish between, and we're going to see we can't do that anymore. Go to Bereshi Parakibet. There are two things that we distinguish that the Tanakh does not distinguish between, and we're going to see why. Go to chapter 12 in Bereshi, Pasuk Zion, verse 7. Vayera Shem El Avram Vayomer. Hashem comes to Abraham and he says, "L'zarecha teina ta'aret hazot, va'yiden sham zbech la'Hashem hanira elav." Two things that are connected, and he says something very, very similar again. If you jump to Parakid Gimel, pasuk Tedvav, Hashem says, "Ki et kol ha'aret asher taroel lecha et nena 
ulizaracha adolam. Okay, excellent. And I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to make a correlation here between two words. We distinguish between seed and seed, okay? The seed of man and the seed of land. And we're going to say Tanakh. Tanakh does not distinguish between the two, okay? It's, it's not a coincidence that Zerah and Zerah mean the same thing because in the mind, remember how we said women and moon and fertility are all part of one big cosmos? <laughs> The same goes for seed and seed. We've just lost touch with it, okay? So if I ask you, and this is really where we're gonna see these sort of like theoretical approaches be applied. If I asked you, because I think one of the most important things, we've been doing a lot of intro in terms of ideas and approach, and today we're gonna see why it's so important to see things through this alternative lens because it enables us to understand sometimes these revolutionary concepts that Tanakh is putting forth that we don't realize unless we step into the mind of the way everyone used to conceive of the universe. Okay? So if I asked you what Sefer in Tanakh most prominently talks about seed and seed, or land and man, or fertility and fertility, right? I'm using synonyms for this. Hmm? Ah, interesting. Okay, I'm not using that one. Brishi. Shir Hashirim. Breshi takes it, presents it, right, as part of our understanding. Okay, so everyone turn to Megillah Oh, no one thought of that. Megillah uh-huh. And I think what we're going to be doing today with Megillah Ruth, I think it is almost impossible to understand what Megillah Ruth is saying on, on sort of the most deepest level without looking at it with an understanding that seed and seed and land and man are all <laughs> tied up together. Okay. Everyone open up to Megillat Ruth, Parak Aleph. First chapter in Ruth, and it starts as follows. And it says, What is Ra'av? Absence of what? An absence of seed. Why is it that the only time Avram and his descendants, who were promised land and Zerah, ever left was only when there was famine? Because why? Because if you don't have food, your children die. If there is no seed, there is no seed. Everyone in Breshit. That's Hashem keeps promising, right? Zerah, 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 Eretz. The only time they leave, and I'm not talking about finding wives, which you could also tie into this whole idea, right? And we're going to talk about it when we get to incest. They can only have wives from outside. We'll get to that. The only time they leave for a protracted period of time is when there's a ra'av. With everything it implies, So this man leaves from the house of bread. Lagur bistei Moab, to go live in Moab, which all of the implications of Moab we all know. Who ve'ishto u'shnei banav. Now, as soon as we hear he's leaving Beit Lechem, and he's going to Moab, what do we imagine? There's plenty of bread there. Well, perhaps there's bread, but we know we're not allowed to marry Moabites. So there might be one type of seed, but they may, there may not be. Any other seed. Okay. And by the way, it's not just the lechem, 
It's Beit Lechem to Steh Moab. They're going from the house, which is all about family and birth, to the Sadeh, okay, where it's much more, you're much more vulnerable and you're not necessarily, family is not protected when they're not in the house. Okay, that's why if a girl who's unmarried is out in the field and she gets raped, right, all these implications of what a Bayit and a Sadeh as binaries represent. Okay. Not rooted. What? Not rooted, you're not protected, you're, you're right, you're, you're nothing. Okay. Um, and then what happens? What do we read over the next bunch of psukim? The experience in Moab is all about what? Death. death and before the death, childlessness. childlessness, infertility. Because they're married to these women, right? It goes, the first Elimelech dies, and then Pasuk Dalit, Vayisulahem Nashim, Vayishluk Sham Ke'eser Shanim, but they're there 10 years, no births. So everything in Moab is about dearth, is about emptiness, oops me, is about lacking, is about infertility. There is no seed. And so what do they decide? To go back. When does Naomi decide to go back? <coughs> Look inside. What prompts her to go back? She has no seed. Huh? Why does she leave? She has no seed left. She hears Vatakam hi vechaloteha, vatashav mishte moav, ki shama piste moav, ki pakan hashem et amo, la tate lahem lacha. Now, this piece of this relationship and this dynamic, we know from Kriyat Shema, we know it from Zabar Dvarim, we know it, which is what? Our relationship to the land is also contingent on. Yeah, yeah, in Shamoa Tishmu, then you could stay on the land. So Hashem is just as much involved in this relationship as anything else, right? And if you don't listen, then then what happens? Okay, then there's not going to be rain. Rain is content, right? Rain, man, seed. Okay, so she hears that Hashem remembers his people. Ki ki pakad Hashem lahem lachem. So they start heading out to go back to the land of Yehuda. And then we know the beautiful interaction between Naomi and Ruth. And there's no question that Naomi is right, the paradigm of kindness. Yes? And the word pakad is used. Pakad is used all the time in... in this is usually the childbirth. Correct. Or okay, so excellent. Now, I want to say... I think that this whole idea of seed and seed is understood oftentimes, right? I'm not the first to come up with this, oh, look, isn't it interesting, Beit Lechem versus Stemo Up. Many, many, many Chazal picked up on it, many recent scholars, but I think it's misunderstood. Literary scholars will say, look, isn't that an interesting literary tool? Isn't that interesting foreshadowing? It says, Pakad Hashem et Amo, so now we're wondering if it's also going to say Pakad Hashem et Ruth, right? It's, only, it's seen as a literary tool, and I think when it's seen as a literary tool, we are superimposing our land man onto a world where land and man were more like this. Okay? Now, why is that important? Let's go back inside. What happens when she gets back to the land? What does Naomi say? How does she, what is, how does she refer to herself? So, first of all, when do they get back? at the very beginning of the barley harvest, right? So we already understand that plenty, there's a potential for plenty, 
But then the women are saying, wait, is that Naomi? And she says, Right? She says, I am empty. Okay, so now that she's empty, so what does that mean? And now again, this is also another interesting piece that unique, uniquely to Israel, okay? Our laws of gleaning ensure that what? I'm going to do it here. I'll do it up here. Seed of man and seed of land. In the ancient world, if you don't have male children, you don't have land, then you don't have what? You have death. Right? Lack of seed in any formulation is death. Here, what are we seeing? What are the laws of Leket and Shikha and Peya and Shur? That even if you don't have any of those things, you're not going to die. There isn't certain death just because you don't have land. Yeah. But if you don't have land and you don't have seed, children, like, then you don't have a future. Well, that's what Megillah is about. But in the immediate, they also don't want to die. Right? But yeah. that also enables that God can superimpose and change the rules of every relationship. Because we don't own it. Right? And again, we have to go back. We don't own the land. We interact with the land. By the way, think about it. And again, we're not going to be doing this. And I think I did this actually in my Daniel course. I don't remember. You'll tell me if I did. Right? When one of the things that the Nevi'im talk about is they say, we didn't keep Shemitah for seven cycles. So the land, it needed a break from us. It needed, it was, it's called a Shabbat for the land. The land needed a break from us not respecting the Shemitah cycle. So that's why we were kicked out. That's the, that explains the 70 years. Right, oh, sorry, excuse me, 10 Shemitah cycles. Right, so there's something, it's, it's, it's assuming that the land is a living, right, and again, maybe living is not the right thing, but a, a give me a word, active participant in this relationship. What? Dynamic, correct, yeah. In a way, that's also an undercurrent to the rest of the world because they all viewed the land in control of that relationship and there were land gods and there were... Yes, so I will, um, yes and no, I think they, there were, nothing in an ancient pagan mind was not, um, what's the word, was not, I don't want to say living, because they didn't think a rock was living, but everything had on some level, yeah, to a degree, to a degree, but it's very different here, we're, and, and we're going to see what the real revolutionary concept that maybe Larut, I think, introduces here. Okay. She comes back and they have this gleaning potential. And Vayikar Mikre, right? She happens to stumble upon the field of Boaz, right? Which is, is that a coincidence? Is it not? We're not even going to talk about that. That's another sort of undercurrent here. But if we look, one of the things that happens, look at what Boaz says to her. Go to Perakbet. Okay? Boaz meets her. And he says as follows. Vayomer Boaz el Rut. Uh, sorry, Parabet Pasukhet, verse 8 in chapter 2. Now, think about this when we're saying that seed and seed are all one and the same, and food and children and land are all wrapped up in one experience. What is Boaz saying? Don't go gleaning in anyone else's fields, okay? In what? Right, and the also the euphemism potentially for right. Correct. 
Right? Any physical, if you are thirsty, water. If you are hungry, seed. He is providing for all of her physical needs. But then, of course, the question is, right? Is fertility lead to fertility? Does seed lead to seed? Etc. And then he sends her home. How does he send her home? He sends her home and picture the image, okay? He sends her home with huge, right, huge servings of barley. Now, picture a woman walking home. Either she would put it up in her apron and hold it like this, or she would put it on a sack in her back. But either way, from far away, or when you're picturing a woman, what does she look like? that she's with child, right? Either pregnant or carrying a child, but she has to walk home with all this barley. So again, even if we just imagine the images in our mind, something's already changing. Now, what does he respect about her? Hmm? Look in Perak Bet, look in verse uh, Yud Aleph, Pasuk Yud Aleph, verse 11, excuse me. She, right, she falls on her face, she says, why are you being so nice to me? I'm a nochria, I'm just a foreigner, why are you treating me like that? And he says, "Vayan Boaz, Vayomer la, who get who godly call at a cola share a seat at Chamotech, a chare moti sheikh, vataazvi." And now look at the language and tell me who he or the author, right, is sort of drawing to our consciousness. Vataazvi avich v'imech ve'eretz moladetech, vatelchi el am asher lo yadat. Okay, so he's invoking Abraham, but she's almost. Uh, this is, I can't say this, it's heretical, but right? But she's almost, she had less to go on. Why? Hashem promises Abraham, the same words, and then Hashem promises, lands hand in hand with She goes, not only does she not have a promise of seed, what does Naomi say to her when they're leaving? If you come with me, you will die alone and sad and empty. Right? That's literally the words Naomi says to her. So Avraham goes on the promise of seed. She does all of those things, the same language, without any hope for any of the things that might have been the reason Avraham went. Okay? Now, of course we know it goes without saying, right? That not only does Boaz take care of her, but if we go jump towards the end of the Megillah, right? I'm going to read to you. Boaz creates, he sort of, um, I would say, initiates, or he is innovative in his use of the rules, the halachot of geulat karka. What's geulat karka? That if my first cousin has to sell his land because he's really poor, and yet, so it's my obligation to buy it from him so that everything can stay within. And again, we're going to talk more about this when we get to incest. Right? On the one hand, you can't marry the people closest to you, but there was certainly an emphasis on marrying right, on some level to keep families powerful and strong, etc., etc. So let's jump to the end and look at what Boaz does. Okay? Boaz, Pasapar Dalad, will start from the beginning. Uvoaz Allah Shachar. He says, come here, sit down. And then he takes ten men and he sits them along with them. So the person who is legally the first in line to buy the land, and that's all he was responsible for, 
Chalkat HaSadeh, Asher Lachinu Laeli Melech, and Ach just means a member of the clan. It's not literally a brother. Machrana Ami, Hashavamiste Moab. So this land, Naomi had to sell. I'm next in line, so if you don't want to land. And he says, of course I'll buy it, it's my obligation. Right? And what, who wouldn't want a nice plot of land? But now Boaz says something else. He adds a caveat to what this man would legally be obligated in. As soon as you buy the land, hand in hand, you are comes this woman, Leakim Shemhamit al Nachalato. So that you can have children with her. And the land will not be called Ploni Almoni, the land will be called, or it won't be called for your sons, it will be called for either Machlon or Kilian. We don't know their interchange. Okay. Right, no, I can't do that. I don't want to infringe on my name. And by the way, I've mentioned this in other classes before. Ploni Almoni is not John Doe. Right? It doesn't mean we don't remember his name. Ploni Almoni is used in Tanakh, for example, if they're telling secrets about war and where to meet each other. They say, meet me at place Ploni Almoni. It's a way of concealing an identity. Right? Karma here, or the ayin tachat ayin here, the midah kineged midah, is he doesn't want to infringe on his name, and so forever he will be known as no name. Okay? His name is concealed forever. He lives on in infamy, so to speak. Okay. Boaz does it, and he marries her. And look at what the women say. The sort of they were like the Greek chorus throughout. Look at what they say in pasuk Tet Zion, or go to pasuk Yud Gimel. Sorry. Vayikach Boaz et Ruth vatihilo lisha vayavoyle vayitena shemla hirayon vateled ben. Right. So now everything has come full circle. The way Hashem remembered them. There's now fertility everywhere. But Tomar na Hashem el naami. Baruch Hashem asher lo hishpit lach koel hayom b'karish mo b'Yisrael. And he says that it should be for you like a meshiv nafesh. Pasuk tetzayim, batikach na'ami et ha'yeled, batishitehu b'chikah. Right, and again, the image, right, it's not her child, and she can't physically nurse it, but she's holding it up against her chest. Batihilo lo'omenet, right? And she was literally, this replaced the child that she lost. Batikrenu lo hashrinot, Okay, and again, this is not less you, this is not a literary tool. This is how the women understand the interaction between land and child. Vatikrena loashli note shamely more. Yulad ben lina ami vitikrena shmo oved. Oved what? Oved adama. Now you're not gonna die because someone will sustain you. Who Avishai Avi David. Okay. So the question that we have to ask, and this is where I think the revolutionary idea comes through, it's, we see it in other places, but I think it comes through most powerfully in Megillat Ruth. And I think we can only appreciate the, the concept when we think of God, human, land. Okay? What prompted Boaz to go above and beyond his legal obligations? What was the inspiration? What was the impetus? What was, yeah, it might just be that he was a really nice guy, but he didn't marry her the first day he met her. Huh? 
Okay, so he certainly, right, he respected her chesed. There's no question. He likens her, right, or at least the author likens her in his words to Abraham. What else? Okay, but what changed for him? Yeah, but for all we know, he had 100 kids already by now, right? Okay, he's certainly, no, he's doing all of these things that you're saying. Right? The question is, what prompted him to do that? There's the law. Okay, but the law only says he has to buy back the land. Yibum, no one is out, Yibum is only brothers. That's why Megillah Ruth was the, the most unlikely to ever have seen because she was an outsider, she was from Ammon and Moab, she was infertile as far as we knew, there were no brothers alive that would do evil, meaning anything we could say, wait, maybe there's hope for her, there was no hope for Ruth. Her relationship with Naomi. Okay, true, and I think there's something, I'm gonna, yeah? It's also that she was going to forego land for her relationship with God, that she goes, what you mentioned before about not having a promise of where she would go, and yet she's willing to go to... Okay, so I'm going to tweak exactly what you're saying. I don't... If we look at her language, she doesn't go for God, right? She goes for Naomi, mm-hmm. and she says, I am so committed to you as a human being, and I, I will even take on your God, right? Okay, so look inside, and I think this is... And again, I think we can only appreciate the brilliance of Megillah Ruth when we see that... This is how humanity used to conceive of the world, right? This ongoing dynamic between these two pieces. Go to Perak Bet, Pasuk Yudbet. Right, it's the Pasuk following the one we just looked at. He says, you're amazing, and he likens her to Abraham, but she didn't even have the promise, right? Okay, and then go to Pasuk Yudbet. Okay? Bet Yudbet. Okay, and look at what he says to her. He says, oh my gosh, you're so amazing. And then he gives her a bracha, which in theory is a beautiful bracha. He says, Yishalem Hashem ta'aleich, utihimas kurtech shlema me'im Hashem elokei Yisrael, asher bat lachasot tachat knafav. You came to find, right, to find shelter under the wings of God, and I pray that he takes care of you. Which makes sense, because we believe, right, God, human, land, seed, it's all... Okay, jump now to what she says when she meets him in the Goran. Go to Paragimel Pasuk Tet, verse 9. She's lying there in the middle of the night, right? And he wakes up and he's startled because he feels this thing moving by his feet. It's not barley. Vayomer miat, right? What is this? Vatomer, and she says, and listen to her language. Anochi rut amatecha, ufarasta knafecha al amatcha, Ki goel atah. What did she just do? He says, Yishalem Hashem, Hashem should spread his wings. And she turns to him and says, You're the wings. Megillat Rut adds into this dynamic something. Now, I don't want to say it is uniquely biblical because we know ancient Egyptians, when they talked about God's insurance, you know, you had to be righteous and you had to take care of the widows and orphans. But the emphasis in Tanakh, Okay, on this added dynamic, which is human, human, <coughs> God, and land, is something very different. It's not just saying you can't murder. It's saying sometimes God rewards, 
right? Sometimes God is right there and he stops the famine, or sometimes he makes sure that a barren woman has a child. But Ruth is turning to Boaz and saying, and this is, by the way, I also believe why we read it on, on Shavuot, right? It's saying there's Din and there's Lutnimishirat Hazin, right? He's saying, Ruth is saying to Boaz, that's all fine and nice, but in the Jewish or in the biblical way of thinking, this relationship is all there's it's an ongoing dynamic how we interact with each other impacts how god interacts with us and how the land interacts with us and how we interact with the land and human one human it's not about one human's relationship with god it's about our relationships with each other sometimes it's miraculous sometimes god steps in but roots is saying sometimes like you can't regret if you're in the right place at the right time you in that moment need to provide those things that we say God provides. Fertility, land, shame. Okay? And that's what I think is unique to Megillah Ruth. That's what Boaz understands. That's why even though legally it was just this, he adds in the human element. He incorporates Ruth into the promise. Right? And again, I think we can only recognize how she transformed how we understand that dynamic when we see that dynamic as something that's ongoing. I don't think the Zerah in Megillah Ruth is a literary tool. I think it's how human beings experience what we're seeing, this sort of cycle. But once we can appreciate what Ruth introduced into that cycle, then, then we appreciate what's unique about the Tanakh's approach to something that's so human. Yeah? It's a human story, not a miracle story. Correct. And it's not to the exclusion of God. No, If anything, God... Right? Correct. And that's why there's all these. And by the way, the most beautiful part, which we're not even getting to now, is that Naomi's faith in God is restored through human kindness. She lost faith in God because there was emptiness. The wholeness that's restored restores her faith in God, but it was the human beings that were those mediators, right? Between the barrenness and the, and the fullness. Yeah. It's also a hundred percent, but the reason Ruth, I think, is beautiful, and it's why I use that as an example, is because there was no halacha being Adam l'chaviro here. This Megillah Ruth has nothing to do with halacha. It is 100% chesed. Right? Legally, he was not obligated in anything, and he could not be faulted. That's why I use this example. Right? That's where I think the Tanakh goes even beyond what anyone else would say. Correct. And that's why, exactly. So going back to what Chaya said, and I think this is what you're also touching upon, it's not, in our minds, there's a God, and there's humans, and there's land, and we just happen to, it's not like that. If we are Tselem Elohim, then we are, in theory, right, meant to act, to do those things that we sometimes might expect God. It's, it's this ongoing cyclical relationship. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah. It seems to me. Okay, so excellent. And that's always what we're going to be looking at, right? It's our binaries meant to be binaries. Right now, if we're talking about Cosby and Zimri, so then, yes, there were meant to be binaries, and then the mediators are problematic. Are they always problematic? Are there meant to be binaries? That's exactly it. And that's what we need to be aware of when we think about it. Yeah? I'm a little lost. Okay. We're talking about mythology, and now we're here. 
Because mythology builds, so mythology builds right on archetypes. Water represents something in mythology. That's why there are all these beings that are always emerging from the water. Um, you know, storms represent something in mythology. All these, there are archetypes that make up mythology that were taken as a given in Tanakh, right? Water meant something in Tanakh mind. Seed and land are all archetypes for things that meant things in the mind of Israel. But I used Ruth as an example to show how we can, once we recognize the archetypes that make up our thought processes, can we appreciate what Tanakh is adding to the human experience? Yes, all human beings experience something, but Tanakh has something to say about how you experience that. Right? You might see seed, seed, man, that's great. Let me tell you, I have another lesson. That's what Tanakh is doing, but we can only see that when we realize how the human mind con conceives of these interactions. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Sorry if that was not clear. Yeah. Um, you, you said that colonial money is not John Doe. It's just uh, it's used to hide somebody's name, like correct, like when they did something not so good, and so you don't want to people. You don't want. He's not punished, and we're not saying he's a bad guy. We're just saying you wanted to preserve your name so badly you put that before being kind. So now we're never going to remember your name. But he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't obligated to. Correct. But I think that's what Mickey Lockwood is saying, is that the things you're not obligated in still need to do the right thing. Right? That's exactly what it's saying. You're saying it would have been the right thing to do, even I mean, though he wasn't obligated to do this. Yes. Law, and then listening to Mishra Okay. okay. I mean, Boaz wasn't obligated either. Boaz so. wasn't even obligated to buy the land. No. Nobody, but he, just he was only obligated once Colonial Moni didn't want to because he was next in line. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. But, okay. Wait, yeah, no? No, but so I, but was Colonial Moni obligated to buy the land? Yeah. Okay. But Boaz sort of tricked him. He didn't trick him. He said, if you want the land, take her too. And plenty of money's like, no thanks. It's not, listen, no one's, no one, I mean, again, no one's saying he's a, we, we don't, he's not the villain. He's just the anti-type, right? He's the foil character. There's lots of foil characters in Megillat Ruth. They're not bad people. Orpah's not bad. She's the foil character to Ruth. Orpah did what's normal. Ruth did something super amazing. Right? The Na'ar is just a regular guy who knows minimal about, about Ruth, and Boaz goes out of his way to find out more details. Colonial Almoni is a normal guy who doesn't want to infringe on his field, and Boaz is the one that goes, so the foil characters show us what's fine. They're not bad people. Orpa was by no stretch of the imagination an evil person. She went half the distance. But Ruth shows us what, and again, of course, because it's the birth of David Amelah, so you have this sense of, oh my gosh, if she hadn't done that, how different would history be? Right? That's what Megillat Ruth is saying. It's saying these small little decisions we make that we don't know the implications of, the trajectory is, is something beyond what we could ever imagine. That's what Megillat Ruth is about, right? Okay, uh, sorry, yeah. No, I was, I was just going to say the It's very, listen, it's very possible, and there's a whole million, you know, again, we always say Shivim Panim La Torah. Number way 69 to read this is that it's a polemic against the very, very harsh um, approach that it was written really in, the, in Bayit Cheney. 
and that the whole Ezra Nehemia, get rid of all your foreign wives, I don't care who they are, that the author of Megillah Rut is saying, whoa, hold on, if we don't make exceptions for the good guys, then we're, we're then, and we have to maybe think about how we can include, if there's someone that wants to convert, which becomes a word that's not used till later in history. How do we do that? Because if we don't, if we just make it rule of thumb and don't allow the people that want to join to join, then we're in big trouble, right? And that's how down the line conversion becomes part of Jewish, right? There was no conversion before that. You just live here and you do it the land. The magic ingredient was that God gave us free will, and yeah. this was correct. And that's with that correct. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Salam alaikum. That's great. All right. Have a great day, guys.